Without fire, our life would not be the same. It is needed for gas stoves so that we can make delicious food. It is needed for heaters to warm us. And it is needed for the production of numerous products. At the same time, it is still needed for driving cars because it burns gasoline in the engine. But fire can also destroy. Welcome to Made in Science. Today, we are meeting Dr. Matt Höhler. He is Division Chief of the Fire Research Division at NIST. That is the National Institute of Standards and Technology based in Maryland, USA. As a student, he was a teaching assistant to the Commerce program, which is one of our master programs taught in English year, in English language. He was a teaching assistant in its inauguration year and therefore has a special contribution to the program that we will hear about later. So welcome. Good morning or uh, good afternoon. I just mentioned that you work at NIST. Uh, what exactly does the National Institute of Standards and Technology uh, mean and stand for? Uh, what is your role at NIST at this moment? So NIST does uh, a lot of a lot of things. Um, we serve as the um, the center for weights and measures um, for the United States and are very active in uh, North America and the Americas. So we do things like maintain the time standards, the atomic clocks, the um, the references for mass. Um, However, we also do a lot of basic science that supports codes and standards development in the United States and abroad. We're, we're not a regulatory agency, so we don't write regulations, but we do, we do science that helps form the basis for technical codes and standards. And we do, we do a lot more uh, different things. It's quite a diverse agency. We have about 7,000 people Uh, working for the agency, and it's uh, kind of like a large uh, research institute or you know university, but minus the students. And one of your focus areas is actually fire. And my question to that: What do you know about fire that you didn't know when you started working there? That's a that's a pretty easy question to answer. Which is uh, uh, everything that I've learned about fire has been since I joined NIST. Um, I've had a You know, uh, my, my career is, has taken a lot of different uh, different paths. Before I started in fire research in about 2014, I was doing earthquake engineering um, and the response of infrastructure to blast threat, but not, not with fire. Um, and so I've really, you know, I made a big change about nine years ago when I started working in fire science and fire safety science. So everything... Everything that I know about it, I've learned uh, through my experiences at NIST. Is there anything at all like a traditional fire research? And if there is, uh, what differentiates your knowledge and your perspective at NIST uh, from other um, scientists interested in this particular field? Yeah, so I'm, I'm definitely uh, kind of, I would say, uh, an oddball when it comes to fire research. You know, I came in to our division Uh, laterally, you know, I had been doing work in large-scale experimental work and earthquakes. Um, when I joined NIST uh, in 2014, they were just 
bringing online a large expansion of the National Fire Research Laboratory, which is our uh, national facility for doing large-scale experimental work. And they were looking for people with a background in large-scale experimentation. Um, and so when I came into the division, most of my colleagues are physicists, chemists, mechanical engineers that do you know combustion uh, and, and have that sort of a background. So being a civil structural engineer that you know was formally trained in geology and structural engineering, it was quite an unusual mix um, for that group. But you know over over time, I've found that to be invaluable for the work that we do because it brings a very different perspective to the type of work that we do in fire research. And in the end, you know, fire, as you pointed out in your intro, is is useful and in in and of itself is not dangerous. It's when it interfaces with our environment, our built environment, that uh, it can be it can be a hazard. And so, bringing in the knowledge of infrastructure and and buildings into that field of research is kind of you know what I've been what I've been working on. Would you say that in general there is uh, a slow learning curve or not a slow learning curve about uh, studying? what fire behaves like and that people react to it. Uh, the people are aware of it, I should rather say. I would, I would, I would probably distinguish between um, the learning curve for somebody learning about it is, uh, you know, it's as fast as they want to absorb and, you know, push the boundaries. Now for the adoption of changes in the way that we, you know, we build our homes, we protect our homes. That is much slower. That's, that's, um, you know, We may be talking on the scale of of years to decades to see, you know, changes that may seem minor, but um, they they have an impact on billions and billions of dollars of construction and infrastructure. And I think, you know, that's part of its human nature is that, you know, when we're talking about infrastructure, we're talking about our homes and the places that make us feel safe and protected. And we trust what we're doing now. So making changes to that is hard, right? You want to be very certain that the changes that you're making um, is not going to have unanticipated consequences for you know the, the, the place that is providing you shelter. Is, is there one in uh, your that you remember uh, while working at NIST uh, that you see an impact uh, already? Uh, one of the changes, one of the recommendations, perhaps, that, uh, that your group and yourself have come up with. So one of the, probably the, the most, um, you know, it's a very unusual case because you were asking about uh, speed of impact. One of the, one of the interesting and very, uh, ended up being very impactful studies that we did was a, a study of the performance of cross-laminated timber buildings in fire. Cross-laminated timber is kind of like um, massive plates of um, dimensional lumber. So like We use two by fours for two by four inches here in the U.S. to build a lot of our houses or two by sixes. If you can imagine a lot of these glued together to form large engineered timber sections. And it's it's a way to create a structure that allows a lot of prefabrication in the factory and rapid construction. And this is something that actually has been going on in Europe uh, for a couple of decades now. And The, the U.S. Is, is, is coming to this industry a little bit later, but there was a strong interest in seeing more wood construction and sustainable construction in the United States. And so there was a push from the 
the timber industry and the construction industry to open up this market uh, of engineered timber and cross-laminated timber to build larger and more you know, exciting structures with this material. Um, and there was on the other side, a um, some concern that when we move from large structures constructed of steel and wood to mass timber, you know, we're con- providing additional fuel to fires. And we need to think carefully about how we bring these into our cities and our and our towns. And so um, there was a lot of debate going on in the U.S. about how to bring this material into the building codes. And um, together with the NRC Canada, which is kind of like a sister agency, a federal agency in Canada to NIST in the United States and the NFPA, the National Fire Protection Association and their, um, and their research arm, FPRF, we... NIST um, conducted a scale of large scale timber experiments. They were some of the larger that had been done at the time about four or five years ago, which allowed, um, you know, the concerns from the fire industry and, you know, and, and the needs from the construction industry to be put to the test. And we don't have as a non-regulatory agency, we don't, we don't have to, design codes on this, but we need to provide a neutral and as correct as possible answer about what's happening with these. And so we ran a series of tests um, and it had actually immediate impact on the building codes. Um, out of those tests came a, a modification to a test standard um, that ultimately, together with a lot of other work by other agencies and individuals, allowed the building codes about uh, a year or two later to allow for the construction of taller mass timber structures in the United States. And so that was, you know, uh, from from the laboratory into a code change in three years is lightning speed in the construction industry. Um, that's, uh, you know, previous things I'd worked on had taken 10 to 15 years to make that journey. So um, that was very impactful. And, uh, you know, it was very interesting just by doing the experiments prior to the work that was done, you know, together with our partners, um, Timber in the United States was really manufactured for economy and strength and resistance to moisture, but fire was not part of their consideration. And one of the issues that was being faced is the adhesives that were used at the time um, would potentially, some types of adhesives would allow the, the timber to delaminate and expose fresh surfaces. So the adhesive would fail before the wood and um that is undesirable. And after these tests, <clears throat> the, um, the, the industry saw, okay, we need, we need to change and we need to prioritize um, how we deal with fire. And, and, I, and I think they've done an excellent job of, of doing that. What made you choose fire research to begin with? You mentioned starting with earthquake research before going into fire research. How did you make that transition? I will. First, I'm going to say I apologize for all the listeners. You can hear I'm a little bit hoarse today. I'm uh, getting over uh, some chest congestion, but uh, we will uh, persevere. To to um, to your question, I mean, I mean it was uh, like like so many things in life. Uh, it, it was uh, it was fortuitous. I mean, you you try to put yourself in the right places at the right time, but um, I never could have imagined that I would be, you know being paid to build and construct large structures and set them on fire to understand how they fail and how to make them better. Um, even, even 10, 10 years ago, I couldn't have imagined that. Um, you know, the, my, my path here was, you know, as an undergraduate, I had, I had studied 
uh, structural engineering and geology. Um, and through that path, got into earthquake engineering. And um, one of the hazards associated with uh, with earthquakes is that fires can occur after earthquakes. Um, you have damage to electrical grids and gas lines, and these can start fires. And so over about 15 years when I was doing large-scale experimental work with earthquakes, this question of fire came up. You know, It wasn't often the primary focus, but it came up. Can we use some of these very large-scale test specimens that we're designing to also study how they're going to perform in a fire? Because as I know, Wolfgang, you know personally, after a major earthquake, there are aftershocks. Um, first responders need to make decisions. Do I go into a building to fight a fire or, or do I not make a decision to do that? What's what's safest? And so um, a lot of individuals, both you know through the government and through academia, have been looking at how we can leverage large earthquake tests to look at fire. So I've done a little bit of that. Um, but the transition to fire really came when I moved from private industry to, to NIST in 2014. And this, this laboratory was coming online. And they had a need um, for somebody who understood structures and, and large experiments. As somebody who understands structures, uh, I think that's the perfect connection to our commerce program uh, that we mentioned earlier here. Uh, it is a program about the development and implementation of numerical methods and simulation techniques to deal with complex engineering problems. In that program, students learn different practical approaches to model, understand, predict, and validate responses of materials and structures. And they want to test this in almost all engineering disciplines. So this is very interdisciplinary. Um, this is uh, where uh, materials um, play a lot, um, a big role, actually. Uh, and against this big background, what was your motivation, your main motivation for coming to Stuttgart? Oh, so uh, the motivation for coming to Stuttgart was, um, you know, I, I had uh, done a, my undergraduate work in the U.S. and I'd gone to work <clears throat> for a while for a, a, a different national laboratory, uh, Lawrence Livermore Laboratory. And I, I knew I was passionate about research and I, I went back and did a, a master's degree in the U.S. Um, all of these degrees were technical Um Although, you know, one of the, you know, my undergraduate university was a liberal arts university. And I always felt as, um, you know, as, as a, an educated person and a kind of a citizen of the world, disadvantaged that I never spoke a second language. Um, and so after my, uh, as my master's degree was wrapping up, I just decided I was going to take a year or two, um, travel abroad. Um, and learn another language, really, really you know, immerse myself in it and try to pick up a language. And it, to, to be, to be frank, it could have been, um, you know, I looked at Japan, I looked at, looked at France, I looked at Germany. Um, and I ended up, um, you know, there were some very, uh, interesting projects and, and places to look at in Germany. Um, and I, I had always found, uh, German a fascinating language. My, my family name, my last name is German, although, uh, you know, my, it's been many generations, uh, that we've been here in the U.S. So I didn't grow up speaking German, but it seemed like a fit. Um, so my my move to go to Stuttgart was really based on my desire to learn German, and also Germany doesn't have such a bad reputation as a as an engineering powerhouse for the world. So I thought time spent there would be useful to me, um, and, and 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 man, was it useful to me as uh, 
as uh, later later in my life. So um, that's kind of what brought me to to Stuttgart. And and as to the connection with commas, the commas program, I arrived in the summer of 2000, and I think that was the inaugural year of commas. And I think all or close to all of the courses being offered were in English. So this was a big transition for a lot of the you know faculty in Germany who had to take develop new courses in English language, um, and to take a lot of curriculum from German and put it not only into English, but also to transition from uh, uh, into a bachelor's, master's type of a format. And so coming from the U.S., having you know done my education there, it seemed like a good fit uh, for me to help with that transition. So I spent a lot of time my first year um, developing course curricula and you know taking a lot. It helped with my technical German as well, taking a lot of German content and and finding ways to to communicate that in English. Um, and uh, I think when I when I when I came on, I, my plan was to stay a year and to you know do a year of service to to commas in addition to the research I was doing. I I, I think I ended up staying on once I decided to stay and do my PhD in Germany. Uh, I think I stayed with the program for three or four years because I, I I loved it and. Uh, it was really a spectacular program. As you said, there were people from around the world um, there to get an education. And I found it really, yeah, constantly a, a challenge and an interest and interesting uh, program. Matt, it sounds to me like a win-win uh, uh, relation, uh, one of the classic ones. But there's also another classic uh, context here, um, because uh, I have to ask you again about this, uh, the factor of coincidence uh, that led you also, in a way, uh, to Stuttgart and uh, to Germany. Um, you mentioned that you were at Berkeley at the time, and, uh, and it basically started there. Am I wrong? No, that's, uh, that, that's correct. When, uh, when I was doing my master's at, at Berkeley, um, they have a good tradition there, they'll, they'll maybe not every week, but very frequently they'll do uh, brown bag lunches where they'll have professors or, or postdocs just give an informal talk for half an hour, an hour and people bring in their lunch and eat and, and have, a, have a discussion. Um, and when I decided I wanted to go abroad, I was sitting um, in one of these brown bag lunches, still not knowing where I would go and, and where I would end up. And I hear somebody in the row behind me saying, da, 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 da. I did my undergraduate in Stuttgart. So I turned around um, and said, oh, you went and got some of your education in Germany. And they said, yeah, I was in Stuttgart. And I said, that's great. Do you still know anybody who's there? Um, and, and they did. The uh, The person was uh, Philippe Philippou, who's a professor uh, in um civil and structural engineering mechanics at Berkeley. Um, he had done his uh, undergraduate work, I believe, uh, while he was in Stuttgart before before going to the U.S. And um, so Professor Philippou put me in touch with uh, Rolf Eligerhausen, who is a professor at the IWB, IWB at, at Stuttgart. Um, and as it turned out, um, Rolf Professor Eligerhausen was, was in San Diego that same week. Um, we connected by phone and... You know, I was, uh, you know, I was a impetuous uh, 21 year old. I said, Hey, if, if we're going to discuss this, why don't I drive and meet you in person? So I hopped in my car and drove eight hours down to San Diego. Um, and, and we ended up talking for two or three hours in, uh, in a hotel lobby. Um, and by the end of it, it was pretty clear to both of us that, uh, you know, this could be a good fit. And uh, about four months later, um, after two months of uh, intensive German training, because I had spoke not a word of 
of German when when I was interviewing for this position. Um, I was on a plane to Stuttgart. That was a fast one, definitely uh, driving driving down the highway, uh, one perhaps uh, from San Francisco uh, to San Diego, but also uh, then to make your decision. Um, you have made another great decision from my perspective, uh, and that is when you uh, decided to join our alumni program and uh, got it rolling last uh, September uh, in its inaugural meeting in San Francisco. Uh, thank you for that one. That was really uh, very, very helpful. And uh, we hope to see more uh, of you and also your former fellow students in this particular alumni association. What are some of your expectations for the alumni work uh, from uh, that in that association uh, in the United States, uh, but perhaps also uh, for the Stuttgart branch here? So, I mean, first of all, I really need to um, applaud the, uh, the, the the rector and the um, and the alumni office for for you know undertaking this effort um, to initiate more of a you know a structured regional alumni programs. You know, I was, you know, when the university reached out to a lot of the North American alumni and said, hey, we're interested in having an initial meeting to to look at strengthening our alumni programs in North America. And, and, and um, I, I just, having grown up in the U.S. where, you know, I'm hounded uh, pretty much every week by various universities uh, ab about their, you know, contributing to the alumni programs and supporting students. It was, I, I, I applauded. Like I like to see to see that effort, and so um, I um, when when we had this opportunity uh, to to go out and meet with some other fellow Stuttgart alums and and talk about what we might need in North America, you know, I took advantage. I took advantage of that, and I think you know what do I expect from the alumni association? Um, one of the things we, we did um, after this initial meeting. Uh, a core group from of alumni uh, came together, and we we did a survey of some of our alumni in North America, and said to them, I mean, we had our experiences, our opinion, but we wanted to know what others here expected and wanted from an alumni association. So we did that, and very clearly, you know, the top things that came back were people want opportunities to connect. Um, with other alumni. I didn't even know before going through this that there's another Stuttgart alumni uh, about uh, 45 minutes from where I am here. Um, and so I hope that moving forward, you know, together with the alumni office and, and, our, and a regional organization, we can find ways for people to connect just with each other, just these the, to exchange ideas and, you know, professional contacts. The, the other thing that came up or the two things that came up were people wanted to hear what was going on at Stuttgart. They wanted uh, another vehicle, you know, tailored to North America, but this could be true of other regions about alumni coming back to those regions, what they're doing um, and, and those sort of things. So just hearing about what's going on uh, there. And finally, people like social events. So, um, you know, helping the uh, alumni to coordinate functions, whether these are lectures or casual get-togethers, um, just to get to know the other people who, uh, you know, shared similar experiences uh, in Germany, you know, and, and then have come to the U.S. or have come back to the U.S. or, or, or Canada. Um, so hopefully moving forward, you know, these are volunteer organizations on this side. Hopefully we uh, were able to... Uh, find a group of people who, who, who want to help advance those causes. 
Matt, what would you say to a student coming, say, from Stuttgart? What should the student, what could the student expect? And vice versa, the American student coming to Stuttgart. Uh, what kind of advice would you have for that student? So, uh, and things, things may have changed in the last uh, 15 years since I graduated, but my first advice to the German student would be get ready for a lot of homework and assignments. Uh, you're, you're, the, the, I, I found that really uh, fascinating. The, you know, the German education model, and I'm sure it's been transitioning for years, was very much different. You know, it was, it was, it was more along the lines of, of self-learning and, and lectures, um, and there was a lot of emphasis on very... Um, you know, big exams at the end. And I think that's probably, you know, that may be changing over time um, where the American system, you know, maybe to a fault is very focused on little incremental uh, steps and checks along the way. So it's, um, you know, be prepared for a different process. Um, and I think it's, you know, both both systems are good and, and they, they, they teach you different ways to, to learn and absorb information. But um, that's, you know, that's one thing. And the other thing, um, is you know don't you know don't just stay put where you are. When I went to Germany, you know I, I uh, at the time they had the Schuneswochenende ticket, which was a, a very cheap train ticket that let you travel anywhere in Germany from Friday night at ten, I think, till Sunday night at ten. I think I saw every corner of Germany while I was there. Um, you know, I think anybody coming to the U.S. This, this is a very diverse country, a very large country. You know, take the opportunity to to travel around and to um, and to see. You know, to to see all of the United States. You know, often you meet people who have come here who have seen one portion of it, and that that's their 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 view of what the United States is. But it is a very large and diverse country. So take advantage of that. Um, for the American students, um, I think you know European education and, and Stuttgart in particular is probably one of the best kept secrets uh, here in the United States, unfortunately. And 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 I think. Some of the efforts that the university is, is taking now are, are changing that. Um, you know, when I was looking for undergraduate education um, and also even for graduate education, I was not looking to Europe. It was really the the, the coincidence um, of of a contact in a in a research seminar combined with my you know my desire to learn a language that brought me there. But um, you know, looking looking back now. Uh, when I went to Germany, I committed to going for, I think it was 18 months with the intent to come back and, uh, and pursue a PhD in the U.S. That was what I was going to do. Um, but within within a year at the university, it became really clear to me that it would be pretty foolish to uh, to go back to the U.S. to do, to do a PhD um, because the things that really mattered, it really mattered to me to do uh, a doctorate were all there in Stuttgart. I had, um, you know, very good uh, and 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 productive collaboration with my advisor. Um, I had the opportunity to, you know, to teach through the commas program, um, and we, I mean, we might have been a little unique for my institute. I had an, an off-campus research laboratory with a laboratory manager and full-time technicians and calibrated instrumentation. Um, so you could very professionally go in and conduct research where, as in a lot of other countries, that's not the case. It's often, you know, it's a learning experience, but it's on the students very much to, you know, to do everything from figuring out how to, how to calibrate instrumentation all the way through. And so it, it was a very, it was a much more um, business-like way to conduct research. And at that point in my career, that's what I wanted, I wanted to do. Um, you know, and, and, and another aspect of it was purely the financial aspect 
of it as a, as a student, I was receiving a salary uh, uh, because of the work that I was doing for the Institute. Um, and at the time, I think when I started, there were no tuition and fees at the university. And even when they started charging tuition and fees, um, they were orders of magnitude different than what we do in the U.S. And so after, after I graduated, and instead of graduating with a PhD and tens of thousand dollars worth of debt, I graduated with a PhD um, and a down payment on my first house. You have just taken a new role, a new function at your uh, institution at NIST. And as I mentioned, that is the one of the division chief for the fire research division. Looking ahead, what do you think you would like to implement and focus on uh, in that particular role? So in, the, in this role, <clears throat> you know, I think a lot of the things that NIST does, um, we are going to continue to do. NIST Fire Research is um, very well known for our large-scale experimental work and for our support of computational modeling, um, you know, materials characterization, and creating valuable data sets for, for industry, and also for kind of pushing the edge on metrology or measurement science around fire science and support of the fire services. And I think these are all things that we will continue to do moving forward. Um, a lot of my role in, uh, in, this, in this new position is, you know, really taking a step back and reflecting on the things That, that, that we are doing and we want to keep doing and we want to strengthen and the things that maybe we've been doing and maybe we, you know, their, 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 their useful life has come to an end. And how do we sunset that and transition that into, into new efforts that um, are of value to uh, the economy in the United States and, and the, and fire, the fire safety in the U.S. and abroad. And so part of it is, is that, you know, working with our teams to do that strategic development. Um, and then, The, you know, the, the, the operational and organizational um, uh, adjustments that have to go along with those sorts of things. And, you know, those, you know, that's kind of the, 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 the core of, of, of what I'll be doing in that position. But one of the things that I'm very much looking forward to is, is looking at new collaborations with industry, with other federal government agencies and other academic agencies Um The, the funding of fire research in the United States in, in academia is, to be frank, quite quite poor and, and somewhat fragmented. Um, we are not a, a, uh, a funding agency of academic work, although we do do some funding work. But I would like to work with other agencies and partners to look at ways to strengthen fire research uh, as a field uh, in the United States. It's important for you know development of fire engineering professionals, but also for the next, you know, generation of scientists working in this area. And so, you know, that's something that I hope that, uh, that we can contribute to in the coming years. Matt, we have already come to the uh, final section of our conversation here. And uh, as you may know, it is called Moment 7. collected seven questions that we would like to ask you and uh, please answer them as shortly as possible 
Moment one. Spätzle or Maultaschen? Spätzle. Moment two. One thing that you could change about the world would be what? That people take the time to to see as much of the world as as they can, whether, you know, wherever they're at, um, to, to see more of it, um, whether that means moving out of your town, moving out of your state, moving out of your country, um, but to, to make that a priority in your life. I think that uh, goes a really long way to helping us understand each other. Moment three. Is there a book or music or movie recommendation that you have for us? One of my favorite books, and I understand a lot more of it now, is, is Gödel Escher Bach. Uh, was written by uh, Hofstetter, I believe, back uh, quite some time now. Um, I would recommend it's not an easy read, um, but it is, uh, it is uh, very enjoyable. Moment four. The best advice that you have ever received was? Best advice I've ever received is when you make decisions, make decisions that open possibilities. Moment five, your favorite place on campus at the University of Stuttgart that you recall. I'm, I'm not sure if this counts as campus, but I spent many, many hours in, in Pfaffenwald running. Uh, we, our institute was on the edge of campus. Um, and um, at the time I was, uh, you know, and I was still an avid runner. And um, I really, you know, pretty much from two in the afternoon till four in the afternoon, most days you could find me out in the woods running, uh, you know, clear my head and allow me to reset and come back and, uh, and, and, and write and work in the evenings. Um, and it's just a beautiful place uh, right adjacent to campus, um, uh, down at the, uh, down at the lakes there to, um, you know, get away and think. And, uh, I, I love that. I still think about that. Moment six, if I could start all over again, I would do the following differently. Can I pass on these? <laughs> I don't. I don't have a good. I don't have a good response for that one. And finally, moment seven. Please complete the following sentence. Thanks to my studies, I know that the most important thing you're gonna learn during your studies is how to learn. Matt, thank you for our conversation today. Most of all. Wishing you all the very best for your future work and, in this case, also for your new position at NIST. Thank you very much. Thank you also to our podcast team here in Stuttgart and to our audience. We are very much looking forward to hearing from you. Stay healthy, stay good, and stay tuned for our conversations that are always based on what is made in science. My name is Wolfgang Holtkamp. Have a great podcasting day.